Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People This Week, gambling under the spotlight. Well, I mean, gambling and problem gambling are dangerous full stop. It's, it's been accentuated in lockdown because people have been bored. Burnham for leader. One day, if it <laughs> came about that I could, then yes, I'm just being honest, I, I would like to, because I've tried twice after all. So. And are we all going on a summer holiday? Well, look, it's too soon now, I'm afraid to say, either domestically or internationally, not least because right now we're saying you can't leave your home unless it's for one of five specific reasons, and one of them is not going on holiday. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Waugh. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Rachel Wearmouth's here. Hi Arj. Hi Rachel. And we're also joined by the Labour MP and PPS Keir Starmer, Carolyn Harris. Hi Arj. Hi Carolyn. Well, as the lockdown goes on and on and on and on, it's shedding more light on some of the unintended harms inflicted on people cooped up inside for months at a time. Last summer, the Gambling Commission revealed a surge in online betting during the pandemic, and concerns are growing about the health impacts. Last week, Oxford University research found that problem gamblers are 30% more likely to die within five years than someone who doesn't bet. The government is carrying out a review into gambling and there are reports that it could take action by banning betting companies from advertising on football team shirts. But Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden has insisted no decisions have been made. Let's hear him. Well, of course, I'm very mindful of uh, Football League uh, finances. I'm also very mindful of the impact that problem gambling has uh, particularly uh, on young people and roots into to problem gambling. That's why we've taken a very open evidence-based approach. And I announced before Christmas a call for evidence. I want to look at all the evidence and consider all the options. And then the next stage, having had that call for evidence, would be to consult on specific measures. But of course, I'm mindful of, of, of all these factors. And I really don't think people should uh, jump to any conclusions about where we're going because I genuinely have not reached those conclusions. That's why I'm, I'm taking all this evidence. Uh, Carolyn, you chair the all-party parliamentary group on gambling. How damaging has lockdown been and, and what action would you like to see the government take? Well, I mean, gambling and problem gambling are dangerous full stop. It's, it's been accentuated in lockdown because people have been bored so people may have turned to gambling who wouldn't necessarily have done it before people who have got a problem with gambling and were trying to avoid it may have had it thrown in their faces you know minute after minute in some cases and I think a lot of people would have discovered someone within the family because you stuck in that close proximity they may have discovered a, a child or a loved one has got a problem with gambling so I think all around it's created a, a situation where it's up the ante on identifying and needing to do something about the you know the problem gambling and what do we do to help the vulnerable people who are trapped there and and what what's the government's carrying out a review now what would you like to see come out of that oh i've got loads of suggestions <laughs> uh, loads of them um, i mean the, the basic things are the stake on land and the stake online 
they need to be the same because currently we, we successfully managed to get the stake on FOBTs reduced to £2. But you could go online and you could gamble for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you could put £22,000 you know, in those machines. It's, it, it, that's endless. So, I mean, the fact that there's no cap on that is absolutely ludicrous. There's been a lot of talk this week about affordability checks and people within certain sections of what are perceived as gambling industry are, are panicking. And I get that because I'm not anti-gambling. I don't want to see everyone who has a little flutter or goes up the bingo for a game, which I do. I have a little flutter. I love a game of bingo. I do want to say to everyone, look, you know, we're going to check how much you can afford to, to spend. These affordability checks are meant to actually target online and how much money people are being groomed out of is the truth of it, Arch, because you, you have situations where people can sign up for an account today and by tonight they could have spent thousands and thousands and thousands and nobody's checked to see if they can afford that. I think when you go into a, you put a, um, a bet on a horse or you go and play bingo, there's what I call thinking time. You think, you have to think about, have I got that money in my purse to go up the bingo hall? Or, you know, have I got the money on my card? People around me will know if I've got a problem with it. They will start saying, hey, are you sure you're doing the right thing here? You've been up here every day this week. You need to think about it. Or in the bookies, you know, you have to think about the form and the, the, the state of the track and everything else. There's all these things which indicate that you have to think about the action of gambling. Online, you just press a button and you keep on pressing it and pressing it and pressing it 24-7. And if for some reason you come off it and you go and watch the telly, I can guarantee you'll see a gambling advert telling you that if you go online, you can have a bonus. Or if you sit in there having a cup of tea, your phone is going to ping because you haven't gambled for like 20 minutes and they're thinking, hey, come on, let's get back. So it's about making sure that those who are gambling online are doing it within their budget within their um, ability to actually spend all that time. But thinking about the consequences of when you get into that terrible place, it's about the mental health issue. It's the public health issue. It's the exploitation. You know, my heart bleeds, um, Arch. The stories I hear every day, it really is, you know, it's and it's not about tugging at heartstrings. This is about meeting people who've lost children. So we need to have affordability. We need to make sure we have an ombudsman because... Don't get me started on the Gambling Commission. I mean, you know, what I think of them, we can put on the back of a very small postage stamp, believe you me. Um, it's about being honest about the situation we're in. The gambling industry would say that, oh, we're going to drive everyone to the black market. No, we're not. They don't need to go to the black market to be exploited in this country. They're doing very well on that score, thank you very much, all on their own. And, you know, when they talk about the black market... The companies who operate legally in this country operate illegally in China and Africa. They are the black market over there. So, I mean, you know, that's just hypocrisy. So there's there's all these things that we've put in our report, which um, will stop harming the most vulnerable. And football shirts are a massive one because, you know, you think about the kids who watch a football club and they grow up thinking, oh, that gambling company, they know what a gambling company is before they know the name of the players in most cases. No, I, I, Peter Shilton tells the story how uh, a four-year-old girl had a teddy bear off somebody and she called him Betway because she supported the football club. Now, oh, oh, my God. Yeah, we can smile and think, oh, God, that's cute. But is it cute? Is it not really quite sinister that a, a child knows the name of a gambling company? No, it's not on. So there's, there's loads of things that we need to do. And as you will be probably aware, I am making my voice very loud and very clear. <laughs> yeah, Paul... Oh, 
Can Sorry, I just quickly ask, quickly ask Carolyn a question? Uh, I know Steph Peacock's um, raised this in Parliament about the National Lottery and she has yeah. some concerns about how they're operating. Do you think they could be leading reforms on gambling? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I've had the, the guy from the National Lottery in several times. I felt a bit sorry for him, actually, because I was in full-on nasty mode that day because I was quite angry because we asked him, would he voluntarily change the age limit from 16 to 18? And he came up with all this bunk about... Oh, they think about it, but they, they it would take 18 months to actually, you know, in, for them to actually get these signs right. Get these signs right. I'll make them these signs. I can have them all done for you in a fortnight. And yet when they have a they have a bumper rollover and they want to advertise, they can get these signs done in less than 24 hours. So come on, guys, don't lie to me. You know, the National Lottery, I've got a lot to answer for. I worry about how much money is actually paid to good causes. I, I worry about how much of a monopoly they've got on it. They've got an online site. Mm -hmm. They're allowing kids to say they see nothing wrong with kids having an online an online account for I think it's three hundred and sixteen year olds, mine for three hundred something like three hundred and sixty pound. I think it's a month to spend on scratch cards. I don't know any sixteen year olds who got three hundred and sixty quid to spend a month on scratch cards. Mm -hmm. No, they're living in a parallel universe to the rest of us, honestly. But they're not living in the world I come from anyway, where people struggle to put food on the table. Mind I've given the kids 360 quid to gamble on lottery. No, I'm really having to go at the lottery. Um, Paul, uh, Carolyn kind of touched on it there in terms of what the gambling industry say in response about the black market and so on. And the industry is a serious lobbying force within Westminster. And the gambling industry brings in a lot of money for the Treasury as well. So how likely do you think meaningful change Well, I think is? you're right. I mean, the, the links between Westminster and gambling are, are well documented. I mean, the fact is... Um, it's like any um, industry that's got lots of money. It's got a lot of money, so it can afford a lot of lobbying. And, you know, it, it, one example is that Michael Duggar, former, you know, Labour MP, now is CEO of the Betting and Gaming Council. Um, one of our colleagues, you know, Kevin Schofield, uh, who's in the lobby, um, is now the head of comms for them. They've got lots of cash. Um, now, their argument is obviously, as, as uh, you know, Caroline just mentioned, there's nothing wrong with the odd flutter and no one's saying that. But it's in terms of the problem gambling and how it's increased over the years, that I think they really need to do a, a lot more on. And I think what's interesting is the way politics has changed on this whole issue. I think a lot more people have seen how more visible it is. Uh, as Caroline was saying, it's not just on football shirts, you know, on I'm a Celebrity, one of the most popular TV shows, it's sponsored by Tombola Arcade. And most people had no idea what that is. And it is a form of gambling. And they were wrapped over the knuckles, I think, earlier this month for an advertising in the middle of this program, which is watched by millions of kids, um, an, an ad that was deemed to attract children. So, you know, there, it is a massive problem. Um, it's a political issue because uh, purely because of the amount of money that's involved. But I think what's interesting is culturally the way New Labour was really in favour of, you know, 24-hour uh, gambling, mega, mega casinos under Tony Blair. Brown sort of am amended that. Um, but it's not quite sure what the Tory position is. It's normally been quite laissez-faire about it. And I think there's a growing consensus now that actually um, it, it's so big and it's so prevalent, the problem with um, the downsides, that actually more needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. And and Rachel, could the government be bold on this, actually, and, and make it part of their levelling up agenda? Does it even sort of apply in that area? Is there a, 
bigger problem in some areas rather than others, perhaps. There's a strong argument to say it does directly apply to the levelling up agenda. You're more likely to see a betting shop in a poorer community, as like Caroline was talking about there. It's, you, it goes straight to the heart of health inequalities. Um, it affects families in terms of, you know, how, in terms of, the, of how the, their money, you know, it goes, it goes right to the heart of levelling up, I would say, particularly when you see how, you know, run down a lot of high streets are in some place, like some parts of the Red Wall. You know, I, there's a strong argument to say that they should be taxing these companies more and perhaps putting money in back into these communities. And I think that that would be very politically popular in Red Wall communities, I would say. Yeah, what the interesting you make... thing is, is just how, how um, you know, in terms of planning, I know David Lammy for a while back had a proposal that you should limit the number of betting shops on a high street, for example. I don't know if that went anywhere, but there's some practical solutions. You often see two or three betting shops in a row, you know, in a knitted yeah. pressed high street. That was more so, uh, Paul, with when we had the fixed odds betting machines in them, because they were only allowed four machines in every bookies. So to get over that, they would have multiple bookies. And, and before I got involved in this, I remember thinking, no, why have they got four of the same brand yeah. on one side and five on the other. Now, a lot of those have closed down now and the industry would like to blame me for that. But in reality, they created that problem for themselves because their greed was, I'm not satisfied with having four. I want to have 24. So I'll have all these shops. So they, but they were only ever single people working on the lowest of pay. You know, when we, I mean, I don't think we talk much about problem gambling until we started looking at the fixed odds betting terminals. I actually remember really struggling to get an APPG together. I think it was me and I was asking friends as a new MP, please come so we can be correct. Um, and then all of a sudden, everybody wants to talk about it. It was mentioned in the chamber yesterday, one of the Tories asked a question at yeah. PMQs about women gambling. There is more of a, a will on the Tory side. And I, you know, I take my hat off to IDS, who is, you know, weird as this may seem, he is my political frenemy. I mean, I just get on with the guy so well. You know, when I think about how much I loathed him before I became an MP, and now he's like my go-to Tory. I've never really got a go-to Tory. But and if he was on here, he would say, I just do what she tells me. Now, who would ever <laughs> thought IDS was going to say he was going to do what a, a Labour, you know, not exactly a posh crystal cut accent Labour person either, is it? You know, we couldn't get more further apart but it's a match and he has done a lot of work on the Tory benches and people like Richard Holden come in and you know the first thing he came on looking for me and said like I'm Richard Holden new MP I want to join your APPG I really think it's important I'm getting MPs from the Tory side and the Lords asking every week to join the APPG people want change and people see we've got to have change so the will is there and the other important figure in all this of course has been Tracy Crouch the former oh, minister who who's been pretty impressive at terms of, you know, she quit over the issue and she, you know, has pushed it quite hard. Yeah, and she is even now, even when Tracy hasn't been in because, you know, bless her, Tracy's had breast cancer. But I mean, I keep in touch with Tracy every week and she texts me and I text her and especially something's appeared in the paper and we both like, we swear in about it. So we text it to each other and she'll say something not nice and I'll say something not nice, but um, never nothing for public consumption, of course. But <laughs> we're on the same wavelength. <laughs> yeah, the culture's changed, isn't it? It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And Carolyn, I wanted to ask as well, because... I mean, we are touching on children and being encouraged to gamble, but there's also massive fears about um, children and gaming and, yeah. and and things like loot boxes. Oh. Uh, Don't what, get me started on them. 
Well, no, please get started. Well, can you explain what the problem is and, and whether anything well, can be done? It's not under, it's not covered by the Gambling Act. So we have these games, which I think most kids will have, a, you know, will have access to a console game with a game on there, with, a, with which will have a loot box. Even if you think about it, on phone and going back a couple of years ago, there was a little friendly penguin game and you had to pay money to upgrade your penguin and that kind of thing. So for years, we've subliminally been grooming children into thinking that buying a virtual prize for real money was quite acceptable, but it's gone to the nth degree now. I mean, kids are buying loot boxes and they pay in maybe 20, 30 quid for something. They don't know what they're going to get. And FIFA 2020, for example, you buy you know this player to build up your team, but you'll actually, you're looking for Alan Shearer and you end up with, you know, Alan Davis who played for Carmarthen Town. <laughs> you know? And it's, but kids are buying into it, so they've got to come under the Gambling Act. We've got to make sure that children are not exposed to this this culture, which is normalising gambling to the point where, by the time they've reached an age when they can legally gamble, if they've been a football fan and they gambling sponsored have sponsored the football team, they actually believe they have a loyalty to that gambling firm. And like I said, they know the name of the gambling firm before they know the names of the players. We've got to stop normalising it. It's just gone beyond. Yeah, very much so. Well, we must move on because pressure is mounting on Keir Starmer with his, no, oh, <laughs> with no, his honeymoon period as Labour leader. <laughs> I'll carry on with my script, Carolyn. We can leave that in, though. Uh, so the pressure's mounting on Keir Starmer with his honeymoon period as Labour leader truly coming to an end in recent weeks. Rachel revealed this week that a coalition of left-wing MPs, unions yeah. and Labour members are calling on Starmer to hold an emergency conference amid <laughs> widespread anger and disillusionment at his leadership. But Starmer has hit back, insisting the vast majority of Labour members are behind him, while allies brief that his critics spend too much time on Twitter and not among voters. But the Labour leader has fallen behind Boris Johnson in the latest YouGov poll on who voters would think would make the best PM. And Andy Burnham revealed this week he still has aspirations to be leader. The Manchester mayor has since tried to play down the comments. Let's listen. I, I, I could have kicked myself yesterday because this was in the uh, papers. It was just a, an off-the-cuff comment. Somebody asked me, did I still have the ambition? And the truth deep down inside is, one day, if it <laughs> came about that I could, then yes, I'm just being honest, I, I would like to. Because I've tried twice, after all, so it would be a bit of a... Bit of a lie if I if I said it would it would never appeal to me. But the truth is I'm not I'm not expecting to Julia. I'm not expecting to go back to Westminster. I believe the job I'm in will be the last job I will do in politics. Um, so you know I'm not plotting any any return. Okay. Uh, so that will cheer that will cheer your listeners up to know that I'm not heading back to Westminster. <laughs> that way. Uh, Rachel, how much trouble is Keir Starmer in? I think it would be quite premature to say that he's in trouble. Um, I think there are a lot of people on the left of the Labour Party who are just never going to accept Keir Starmer. Um, you know, they would have supported Rebecca Long Bailey at the at the leadership election. Um, so I think a lot of a lot of that is driven by the left of the party at the moment. This this call for the special conference, and they're they're never going to be happy. Um, and there, there is some frustration more more generally in the Labour movement. I would say that. There's not been much talk of policy yet, but that's, it's very difficult for the leader of the opposition during a global pandemic when you know it's not really a time when the public would necessarily notice if you set out a big policy agenda and they would perhaps take quite a dim view of um, 
the leader of the opposition trying to politicize a pandemic. Um, I think that there is also some frustration in that Keir Starmer had a very big bounce early on in the polls and that's kind of leveling off. But I think at the time, a lot of people within, within the, when these, there was this big bounce in the polls at the time, they, they were kind of playing those down as much as possible because they knew it would be that, that early bounce. I think it, it's sort of maybe a good idea for, for some people within the Labour Party to take stock, you know, just, it was only last December that, you know, they, they fell to their worst defeat since the 1930s. Um, but I think it's kind of, it started, the pressure started to build and that there's been no conference, so there's been no release of that pressure valve where both sides of the Labour Party would talk about policy um, and they would come together and, you know, they, they would have a more feel for where the party is. But it's also coming up to the local elections when, um, and this will be Keir Starmer's first big test of his leadership. So I think a lot of people seem to be feeling the pressure somewhat, but in trouble. I don't know, maybe that's a bit premature. Next week, um, there's going to be a, a, a big speech from Keir Starmer in which he will talk about what happens after the pandemic. So um, there'll be sort of a lot of talk about sort of short term measures, which would make a, a and this will build on his big speech on families and um, which he made, uh, I think it was last month. Um, so sort of secure short term measures. And then but then we'll start to look towards the future and what happens after the pandemic. So and that will come under that, like the banner of rebuild. And that will be looking at more medium to long term measures. Um, do you think it's quite a big deal for Kia, this speech, Carolyn? Yeah, I do. Um, and I think it's I think it's what he's going to be saying is that we can't go back to, you know, to, it's not going to be business as usual. Things will be changed. Things will be different. And uh, and we this speech will be about moving on. But if, you know, if we can go back to talking about the policy announcements, whatever, our party in 2019 was in the worst possible place that you could be in to go into any general election. So we've had Kiev had to spend the last few months rebuilding a party. No policy, you, you can't build policy when you're trying to rebuild a party. Now he's rebuilding the party. Now you can start working on the policy. You know, those policies will be built on sand if he'd done it before now. Apart from the pandemic, I mean, he's, he's a kind of person who will not get in, he will not start something that he can't finish. And he, he promised he would come in and he would do this properly and he, he is doing it properly. And when I see these articles, I actually did it this morning, I see these articles which say, so-and-so, so-and-so is going to be challenging Kia for leader and we need a left-wing candidate that's the time when i think god we get it right we must be doing it right because this is what it's all about you know you can't you've got to move on of new we had that project it failed abysmally you know we were a laughing stock let's be expect no bones about it we were a laughing stock the red wall we talk about the red wall now i mean that was such a labor stronghold you know i cry when i think about the people that we lost from the red wall people people like vernon corker People like Jenny Chapman, people like David Hansen, parliamentarians to the to the fingertips, good, professional, excellent politicians. And we lost them. And we lost them because we were selling a vision that nobody wanted to buy. Kiev had to come back, he had to come in, he had to get rid of all that nonsense, and he had to start putting together a credible opposition who can come forward with credible policy when we were in a strong place to deliver on it. We get into that place now. From year on in, we're going to see, you know, we're going to see the building blocks, which he's, he is working on, and we'll, we will become 
we are a credible opposition, but Keir Starmer will become a prime minister of this country. Of that, I'm absolutely certain. And I, you know, I'm yeah, I am probably his biggest fan. And you know, from before I met him, before I even met him, I knew he was going to be the next leader of the Labour Party. And the day I met him, the day I went into Parliament, I said, oh, "I've heard a lot about you, Sunshine. Let's have a cup of tea and sort out, you know, what are you all about?" Um, and we've been firm friends ever since, and friends we are. So yes, I've got a loyalty to him, but I'm also a pragmatist and a realist. So all this nonsense about so-and-so, so-and-so's going to challenge him for leader, yeah, bring it on, because it's nonsense. Just making themselves look silly. Talking on Zoom, that's all they're doing. Talking to each other on Zoom. Come into the real world, my loves, and let's talk about the damage that's been done and the repair work that we're doing. And that's my point on it. Um, Carolyn, what did you make of Andy Burnham's comments? Do you think he'd do a better job? Well, obviously, you don't think he'd do a better job than Kim. No. What did you think of his comments? Well, I, I supported Andy the first time round. Um, and I was quite, quite, no, I, I did quite a lot of work in Andy's campaign. And that was Andy's time. I'm not going to lie and say that I thought he should have lost. I mean, I think that Andy should have won then. But he didn't. Andy made a decision to leave Westminster and to move on. And now he's gone. He's doing a brilliant job in Manchester. Um, you can't come back from that now to become the leader of the party. So with all the respect in the world, and I love Andy dearly, and I, you know, I keep in touch with him, and I'm a fan of Andy's. But no, it's not the time now, Andy. We're doing fine on our own. Thank you very much. But just support us, uh, and we don't need any more of the silly nonsense talk. I was just going to say, how does it affect Keir? Does he get sort of... Did he get wound up about it? Oh, God, no. I'm the one who gets wound up. I always say to him, no, Kia, you keep calm. I'll bear the grudges, right, my love? I'll have, I'll, I'll bear all the all the grudges and you just be wonderful. And that's the deal that we got. Yeah, and Paul, as Starmer's allies like Cal Carolyn Wright, that, that criticism is, of his leadership is maybe happening in a bit of a Twitter bubble. And what are Labour's prospects looking like for May's local elections? Well, the two interesting points, though, certainly whenever I talk to um, anyone in and around, around Keir Starmer, yeah. you know, they constantly say to me, well, yeah, that's another Twitter row. Um, you know, we've got to get beyond Twitter. We've got to get beyond the, the world um, that's sort of obsessed with itself when in politics, uh, whether that's at LCLP level, whether that's at Westminster. You know, that that's their message. And they've been quite um, um, sort of brutal about it in many ways. I mean, don't forget one thing that's interesting is that um, there's a lot of noise last week about whether or not Keir Starmer was cutting through with the so-called commentariat. I mean, one thing you have to remember, if you're a Labour leader, you're always going against the uphill on the commentariat. You know, you've got the whole section of the right-wing media who are always going to have it in for you. So of course, there's going to be loads of pieces about Keir Starmer's doing badly. Um, but what surprised me is that some people on, on the left saying, um, look, yeah, we're all wondering what's going on. And it seemed as though there's a sort of, um, there's a gap. There's not an, there's not many people who have, have been out there saying, well, actually, Keir Starmer is a great thing for this, that and the other. Now, that's not the job of journalists like you or me to do. And so I think the interesting thing is that, um, yeah, in terms of the commentariat, then it's natural that there are some people who are going to say, well, what's happening? They look at the polls and they think, you know, is there going to be more progress? But the curious thing is that I'm not sure that there seems to be this view that somehow there's a consensus that Keir Starmer is doing badly. I don't think there is a consensus that no. he's doing badly. And um, I, I'm not quite sure where that comes from. There's this weird idea that somehow it's all about passion politics. And I think uh, Marina Hyde last week put it really well, you know, 
that's the that's the curse of the English football team. You know, everyone wants them to be passionate, and you've got to prove that you're passionate. And and somehow sensible, clever tactics in, in football, and you know, um, building a team is is irrelevant. That and it's all about passion. Now we've had passion, we had lots of it under Jeremy Corbyn, and a lot of people might say that didn't really get you very far. There is a separate question about the May elections, and we did a story the other week on this, which everyone um, thought, oh yeah, that's a bit of expectations management. Actually, it wasn't. We've been proved right. We did a story saying that people close to Starmer were worried that there would be a vaccine bounce. And lo and behold, since the article, there's lots of polls showing there's been a vaccine bounce. So that's kind of natural. So that's one thing against him in the head of the local elections. At the same time, you know, Labour did so disastrously under Jeremy Corbyn in 2017 local elections that you've got to think that they've got to do much better than that just by turning up and, you know, anyone with a, a, a Labour rosette on would do miles better than they did in 2017. Um, similarly, 2016, everyone forgets in 2016, Labour went backwards in the local elections. They actually lost seats. And for three years solid, 15, 16 and 17, Labour lost seats, which is unheard of for an opposition. Um, you know, in, in the local election. So you've got to say that in many ways, it, it's an easy hit for him to start gaining seats in May. And if he doesn't, then Ben, I think you, you can really start the criticism. But I, I would be amazed if he don't start gaining quite a few seats. The downside, of course, is, as I say, the, van, the vaccine bounce, plus the fact that in 2019, Labour got really hammered. Um, and whether or not there's any lingering affection for, for their local Tory MP in the Red Wall, whether that'll translate into local elections. It's all, it's gonna be fascinating because it's gonna be the first real electoral test of Keir Starmer. And I think that's why everything else is just no, noise and hot air until you see those results because there'll be nuances in it, but I'm pretty sure you'll see some progress. And then maybe he'll say, well, look, there you go. There's the progress and stick with it. The other point to make is that Behind the scenes, and we we you know we've reported on this quite a bit, um, is that at level of the NEC and other parts within the party structure, Keir Starmer is building a sort of a, a team that isn't exclusively factional. It's not the Starmer faction. It's a broad-based team, but equally, he's basically. Um, uh, said if you're either with me or you're not with me and if you could be with me as part of a sort of coalition of different bits of the party but if you're not then you know I've not got time for you and that I think people don't quite realize how important that behind the scenes stuff is it means that at NEC you can it can basically drive through things that will affect a lot of internal party politics but also in terms of policy I think you're going to see a lot more of that maybe as the year goes on. Well, talking of a vaccine bump, uh, this week in COVID news has followed a theme that will be familiar to many by now. Government ministers tying themselves in knots over what people can and can't do. It all kicked off on Wednesday after Transport Secretary Grant Shapp said people should not be booking even domestic summer holidays. Boris Johnson later agreed, saying it was too early to make summer plans. But at the same time, Matt Hancock was telling Tory MPs at the 1922 committee about the summer holiday he has booked in Cornwall. The idea that holidays may not happen this year has left some backbench Tories fuming. Let's hear 1922 Vice Chair Charles Walker. We'll always argue that it's not the right time, just another six months, another six months. We have the vaccines. We have the vaccines. We were told they were the way out of this. So we vaccinate the population, but you're still in lockdown. People are going to start scratching their heads and start wondering what on earth is this, this all about. What the government is doing now is bordering on the very dangerous, to be perfectly honest. It is robbing people of hope. 
It is robbing people of something to look forward to, and it is very, very stupid and very, very short-sighted. Now, I don't hold the Prime Minister responsible for this, but I do hold his Secretaries of State responsible for this, and he needs to rein them in very, very quickly. Uh, Paul, you can feel the pressure building on Boris Johnson ahead of next week's lockdown review, can't you? Yeah, I mean, I wrote a bit about this last night. Um, it's The problem for the Prime Minister is that he's got people in the Tory backbenches who really want to pull him in different directions. And, you know, you've got people like Charles Walker who are desperate to... Um, to be fair to Charles Walker, you know, he's been a long-term campaigner for mental health and he's saying, you know, there's a lot of people isolated who are really at the end of their tether and they want, want some hope and, they, and you've got to give them some hope. Uh, you've got other people saying, you know... Uh, being ultra cautious and saying look you really can't you know you've got to realize that this has got to be the last lot there and if you get this wrong not only is it bad for the country because you know it will lead to more cases and deaths but it'll be terrible for the Tory party um, you know because that will look so incompetent and we were talking previously about Keir Starmer you know his number one brand is competence you might not think he's got passion but you, you, you could think you could see him in number 10 and which is you know a basic pre-requirement of any leader of the opposition. And if, if the Tories get this wrong, the stakes are very high indeed, politically, not just um, for the country's health. And so I think, I mean, I can, what's interesting is this whole travel stuff. I think there are more and more Tories who are really worried that there won't even be British holidays, let alone foreign holidays. And for them, you know, we talked about this last summer. I remember talking to a someone on the right of the Tory party who represents a northern seat who said, look, you know, it's my constituents, the working class constituents, you know, they've worked hard all year. And the one thing they look forward to is their two weeks in the Costa Brava. If you take that away from them, then and, and it's cheaper to have a holiday there than it is here, etc. And if you take that away from them, they're going to really hit you hard. And so for them, they were saying this isn't a question of sort of airy fairy um, liberties or civil liberties it's a question of you know what you what you've been paying in every year uh, saving up for your holiday and then see it all trashed so it's interesting that more and more Tories are going to uh, I mean gen generally kick off if there are, are real restrictions on holidays but I think as I, as I said last night for a lot of people right now the more important thing is you know are you going to be able to see your relatives in in three weeks time rather than are you going to see the sunshine in six months time so i think that's the difficulty and that's what the lockdown review he's got to somehow balance it he's got to show some hope but also m prove that he's learned the lessons of um releasing a lockdown too early uh carolyn i've got to ask have you booked a summer holiday no no i haven't um but I just, I just don't think we can be going anywhere too quickly, you know. We, and we can. Boris Johnson can't allow his backbenchers to dictate the policy on lock. This is too big. This is a mass. This is the biggest thing that's happened in this country since the Second Second World War. Until we are absolutely sure that when we do unlock, we're not going to have to go back into a lockdown, uh, and that we know that the vaccine is working, and that you know a large proportion of the country has been vaccinated. I don't think he should be making any hasty decisions about you know returning any kind to any kind of normality. I, I don't envisage we'd have a normality for quite a while yet. But when you say about Grant Shep said this and Boris said that, but that's just become characteristic of them, isn't it? I mean, they're all talking out of different hymn sheets. They're all I could get the feeling sometimes that Matt Hancock is saying what the people who were listening to him want him want to hear at that particular time. Well, Grant Chaps, I mean. That's just 
no, I'm I'm just I've been waiting for a letter about TVLA from Grant Shapps about the terrible situation there. I mean, the man's in denial. Why he's in the cabinet is beyond me. And and you know, if anyone's to go, bye bye Grant or Michael Green, whatever his name is this week. Um, but you know, I just think that they are they are in turmoil. But you know, are they? He's trying to please too many people, and the only people he should be pleasing are the scientists because they know that we cannot go anywhere until the time is right. And, and I would say, Boris, comb your hair for a start because you're absolutely atrocious to see you in the chamber and PMQs looking so scruffy. It's it's an insult to the British nation. And start listening to the, pe the, the people who know what they're doing, not your backbenchers. Yeah, Carolyn, there's a massive debate happening, especially in the Tory party, about... Once you've vaccinated these top nine groups who account for 99% of deaths sort of by May, that after that point, we shouldn't really have any re restrictions or they should be minimal. Mm. Have they got a point? Um, I don't think any politician who isn't a scientist or medically trained has got any right to pass comment on the current situation. You know, I've got my thoughts. My per I'd love to go out more. You know, I can go to London. I went yesterday for PMQs. I can get out and about because I'm feeding people in the constituency. So, you know, I, I've got a little badge with green stripes on that says I'm a parliamentarian and I am a key worker. Therefore, I can work. But there's a lot of people stuck indoors who haven't been out for a long time and they are depressed and they are lonely and take me back to the problem gambling, how these things start. But then the, the other side of the coin is this is a really dangerous disease that's out there. And, you know... We have to find a way to look after those while they're in lockdown, but we don't need to make any hasty decisions about letting them out. And maybe we've got the mental health thing wrong. Maybe more resources should have gone into looking after people at home than worrying about pleasing backbenchers, because that nonsense just frustrates me no end. You know, some of the stuff that's come out of the Tory backbenchers has been absolutely unbelievable. Even my friend at Ian Duncan Smith, that's one thing we don't agree on. So. <laughs> Well, on that, it's time for the quiz. Yay, we love the quiz. But I've got to win. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm not playing. I love well, this, Carolyn. You, you, you heckle the script <laughs> opening. Now, now you're heckling the, the quiz. It's, this is new. I like this. <laughs> um, well, in a week where it's been revealed that taxpayers are footing the bill for government photographers to take pictures of Boris Johnson's dog, this week's quiz is all about animals in politics. Just shout the answer if you know it. Um, so while Dylan the dog has attracted attention this week, cats have been the more famous residents of Downing Street in recent years, particularly after David Cameron introduced Larry to number 10. But George Osborne also had a cat and a dog while Chancellor. What were their names? Point Tom three. and Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what was the what was the cat called? Oh, jeez. I don't know. I have no idea. It was it there was a cat in the Foreign Office that was something like Palmerston, but yeah, Israeli, Israeli one, eh? Oh. It's, it's not. It's not Palmerston. No. I will say that our, our politics colleague Ned got at least one point on this earlier. So was it? Was the cat named after a political figure? No. Oh God. No. I've got no idea. Mittens. No. Uh, the cat was called Freya. What? And the, dog was... that. <laughs> and the dog was called Lola. How on earth would Ned know either of those? I'm very impressed. Yeah. Anyway, he got, he got the cat. I'm yeah. worried. Wow. <laughs> um, we're going global for the next one. Um, 
1988, an animal named Tiao garnered 400,000 votes in Rio's mayoral election after becoming popular for his constant bad mood and habit of throwing mud and feces at visitors to the zoo where he lived, in particular politicians. But what type of animal was it? Was he a chimp? Yes, well done. Uh, that worries me, Paul, that you knew that. <laughs> My wife's got relatives in Brazil. I've got an excuse. Yeah, uh, it was a chimpanzee called Tiao. Uh, two newspapers jokingly created his candidacy for mayor in defence of spoilt ballot papers. And the chimp finished third out of 12 candidates in the election, thanks to write-in votes. I'm surprised uh, Carolyn didn't say we've got a chimp in number 10. I was going to say that. It's probably the one in, uh, from the white tub, so... <laughs> that, that question was a long setup for someone to take the bait there, but yeah. <laughs> final question. Paul's on one point. Rachel or Carolyn can draw it. So here's the final question. Ken Livingston is famous for his love of which animal? Newts. Yes, well done, Paul. Two yeah, points. I've, I've actually been to Ken's house and seen the newts in his back garden. Does, he have, does he have names for them? I can't remember. No, I don't, don't think he did, actually. That's a leap too far for me. <laughs> <laughs> he, did, he did proudly show me a sun front page that he'd, he'd uh, framed and put on his wall, which was Britain's most hated man. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think that might now apply uh, yeah. uh, for a different reason. Put it that way. Yeah. Uh, well, on that, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels, and please be sure to leave a review and get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the War Zone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. Well, the only place we can possibly leave this is the highlights of last week's now infamous meeting of Handforth Parish Council. It's only the chairman who can remove people from a meeting. You have no authority here, Jackie Weaver. No authority at all. She's just kicked him out. No, she's kicked him out. Don't, don't. She's kicked him out. Don't. This is a meeting called by two councillors illegally they now elect a chairman no they can't because the vice chair's here i take charge read the standing orders read them and understand them <gasps>